0: Genesis chapter 35 is our text this morning. Genesis chapter 35, obviously we've already read through it. Sorry, my eyes are taking a minute to adjust here. As I was reading through this passage, um, you know, it's interesting when you're preparing for a message, at least this is one of the things that I do, I, I probably read through it at least a hundred times. Um, you'd think you'd have it memorized after that much, but for, for some reason my brain doesn't seem to retain it all. <laughs> but you, you just read over it over and over and over again. And of course, you know, you're reading other things, you're studying other things, commentaries and, and, and such. And um, and those are great, um, but a lot of times they get really detailed uh, have you ever noticed some of those commentaries just kind of like dig into, uh, you know, all the names. They mean this and that and this and that. And by the time you're done reading the commentary, it's like, okay, but what's the point? <laughs> um, and so it's just interesting. Sometimes as I go through some of these passages, um, certain phrases just kind of jump out at me. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but there's just, just certain things that just kind of keep coming out. I and mean, it's just like, Hey, think of that. Hey, think about this. Think about this. And um, the phrase that kind of kept jumping out at me uh, this time, we find here in verse 3 of Genesis 35, it says, then Jacob, speaking to his family. He says, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, excuse me, and has been with me wherever I have gone. Notice what he says there, he says, that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. The title of the message this morning is The God Who Answers in Our Distress. The God Who Answers in Our Distress. And we're gonna look at several different distresses here in the life of Jacob, but... um, you know, we think about this word, distressed. Have you ever been distressed? No, not stressed, de-stressed. That's not getting rid of stress either. You would think de-stressed would be getting rid of stress. But uh, anyway, have you ever been distressed? There's a difference, right? I know, it's spelled differently. I'm terrible at spelling. Distressed, right? That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about de-stressing. It's talking about distressed, right? Have you ever been Distressed. Um, as as uh, Eric was praying this morning, I just kept thinking about someone we just prayed about this morning. that could very easily be distressed. When you think of Emily and and what she's facing right now. It's a very distressing thing to come to the realization that your life is not may not be much longer. That can be very distressing. Um, the, the textbook definition of distress is pain or suffering affecting the body, a bodily part or the mind, a state of danger or desperate need. I like that last part the best. A state of danger or desperate need. Have you ever been there? Maybe you've been in a, in a very dangerous situation. We had a uh, we had some nice conversation the last time our life group got together, um, sharing some interesting vacations that we had had over the years, and, and that kind of morphed into other conversations, and uh, Dave Painter shared with us a very distressing incident he had when he was working for, as a guard in a prison uh, many, many years ago, um, but a, a state of danger. He wasn't actually in danger, but he felt like he was at the time. But a state of danger or a state of desperate need. Have you been there? Have you been distressed? As I was thinking about distress in my own life, I, I, I honestly can't think of a bunch of times in my life where I really felt like I've been in, in desperate need, where I really feel like felt like you know I was just in, in, in lots of danger. Um, except for one time that kind of popped in my head and. and it was a time where my brother and I were together, and he probably won't ever listen to this, so I'll, um, I'll put him in the worst light. How's that? Um, my brother and I were together, and, and we were late in high school, and we, we were traveling to um, Illinois. Both my grandparents, both sets of grandparents lived in Illinois, lived in Decatur, Illinois. They were about 10 minutes away from each other. Um, so whenever we would take vacation, basically our vacations were to go to Illinois most of the time to visit grandparents. And, and so we would travel, we would stay at one grandparent's house, and then, of course, we'd go visit the other grandparents, um, you know, kind of back and forth. And, and over the years, my brother and I pretty much memorized the route from one grandparent's to the other because we have just, I mean, it was every time. We dove three or four times in the week that we were there. We'd go back and forth between uh, these locations. And so it's very, very familiar to us. And and we were older teenagers. I, I think I was probably maybe a senior in high school, maybe a junior, um, probably a senior. And my brother's a couple of years younger than me. And I think Jonathan just had his driver's license because we could both drive. Um, I might've been, might've been maybe a freshman in high school or college. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, so we had asked since we were, you know, independent young men, if we could go hang out of our other grandparents' house because we had, uh, relatives that lived next door and they liked to play games. And if you know me, I like to play games and, uh, Jonathan liked to watch movies so he would go watch movies and I'd go play games and uh, so we asked if we could go over there and, and, and hang out for a while and then come back you know we had the curfew make sure you're back by X time um, and we got to take the car it was just the two of us and it was great we went over there in the in the afternoon and we, we hung out for supper and, and played some games and, and just you know had a good time and then it was getting close to the time that we had to go back home well, Decatur, um, at least the area where my grandparents are, is not extremely populated. Um, so there's a, a few lights over by the grandparents we started from, not so much by the grandparents' house that we were going to. And as we were going, again, this is a very familiar route, but as you know, things look different in the dark, do they not? And uh, and there's this area here, there's, there's a, uh, an intersection, and you pull up to the intersection and you turn left, and almost immediately after turning left, you get off and you get onto a a rural highway, go out and you pretty much take that straight out to my other grandparents' house. And um, we came up to the light and uh, we turned left and we kept going because we didn't even, we didn't see the sign, we didn't see the turn, we didn't see anything. It just was, it was, looked completely unfamiliar to us. And we're driving, and we're driving, and we're driving, and we're like, man, aren't we supposed to turn sometime? You know, nothing was looking quite right. It didn't seem right. And, and of course, this was back before cell phones, you know, and, you know, being, being a young man, you know, not prepared, I probably didn't have any money in my pocket to be perfectly honest, with at least no coins to be able to, to make a phone call. And quite frankly, I wasn't smart enough to stop and make a phone call. Um, and the worst part is I didn't have anybody's number. I didn't know my grandparents' phone number. So even if I had the ability to call, I'd have to find out if anybody had a phone book, try to figure out what my what their phone number was and get a hold of them. This was Christmas time, we had other family there uh, visiting at my, my mom's uh, parents' house and we're gone doing who knows what for quite a while. Uh, we found a, a, an, an entrance ramp to another highway that sounded familiar, and so we got on this entrance ramp, and we started going up, and if you look at the map, basically we're coming from down here, and there's a, a city up here called Forsyth, and we basically went this way, and then we got on a ramp and went up towards Forsyth, and things looked, again, familiar, but not right. And I just remember driving. I was driving, and I remember my brother literally, like, almost screaming at me, pull over! Pull over! We've got to stop! We've got to do something else! Let me drive! And I'm just like, you are in no state to drive, all right? I am not pulling over, all right? Of course, his version might be a little bit different. I was very calm and collected, of course. (laughs) But, but I remember driving down this highway and I guarantee you, we made this loop past the turn at least three times. Because we knew we needed to be somewhere in here, but we couldn't figure it out. And uh, after a while, um, we finally realized where the turn was about the third or fourth time coming around and was able to make the turn. Okay, we know where we are. Five minutes later, we're at the, the grandparents' house. Come to find out there were search parties out for us, trying to figure out where we were. Uh, thankfully, I think they did have some sort of communication with cell phones through work or something like that. But uh, we made it home safely. But I just remember driving down that road, literally shaky, not knowing where I was, Not knowing where I was trying to get to knowing where I was trying to get to, but not knowing how to get there, and just feeling helpless. (laughs) Feeling like there was nothing I could do, and nothing anyone else could do, because no one knew where we were. I I was literally hoping that there would be a police car someplace that would pull me over just so I could say, I need help. (laughs) It was scary. And, uh, and that's the only time that I can really think of, you know, that I would say I, w- I really felt distressed. Maybe you have a, a better story than that, um, a scarier story than that, I don't know, of a time that you've been distressed. But we all are going to face trials and struggles and hardship and distressing things in our life. We all will whether it's getting lost in the highway uh, for almost an hour, running the same loop over and over again, whether it's getting news like cancer, we will all hit moments in our life of distress where in our mind there is imminent danger. There's a desperate need for help. And that's where we find Jacob this morning in chapter 35. The big idea this morning is although times of pain and sorrow are guaranteed, you realize that times of pain and sorrow are guaranteed. God did not save us to give us a rosy life, We we have a phenomenal life to come. But our life here on earth is still marred by sin. And there is still pain, and there is still sorrow, and there is still struggle. But although times of pain and sorrow are guaranteed in this life, God is faithful in answering our distress by reminding us of who He is and what we have in Him. God is faithful in answering our distress by reminding us of who he is and what we have in him. Notice I didn't say God is faithful in removing our distress. He doesn't always do that. Sometimes he allows the distress to continue. Sometimes he allows the distress to worsen. What we think could be no worse becomes worse. I think of Job. Loses almost his entire family. And just when you think that's as bad as it can get, what does he get? Boils, right? I mean, what most of us would consider the greatest distress, and then God allows Satan to bring on top of that a physical ailment, a horrid physical ailment. What kind of distress that might be. Sometimes God allows that to happen, but yet in that distress, he provides an answer by reminding us of who he is and what we have in him. So as we look at Genesis 35 this morning, I want to look first of all at Jacob's distresses. Jacob's distresses. I'm going to kind of break this down into two things. We're not going to go through uh, methodically through the passage. I want to look at all the different distresses because we've got distresses from the past uh, that Jacob's been through. We've got distresses that are going to be in the future. And we've got distresses that are given even here in this passage multiple things that could be distressing. And so I wanna look at these different things about Jacob, and then I wanna look at the way that God answers, the answers that God provides for Jacob by changing the way that he thinks. So let's look at Jacob's distresses. The first one is the original distress, and that is Jacob fleeing from Esau, right? That was a very distressful time, and of course, God met him, In that distress, did he not? In fact, he met him in that distress where he's telling him to go now. Because remember, he says, the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I go. He's referring back to when God appeared to him at Bethel. And and Andy reminded us of that last week with uh, the, the vision of the ladder or the stairs. So we have the original distress of, of him fleeing from Esau, and yet God intervened in that moment as well. And then we have the secondary distress, and that is when he met Esau. He's first to, are related to Esau. So we got fleeing Esau and then meeting Esau. And even there, did not God meet with Jacob? He did. Jacob wrestled with him, if you remember and then just recently here in chapter 34, we have a new distress. What happened last week? Simeon and Levi have taken it upon themselves to seek vengeance for what has been done to their sister. And their vengeance is pretty great. I mean, they went in and slaughtered everybody. All the men slaughtered. Took anything they wanted, took the women, took the livestock, took the things. They pillaged basically a city because of what had been done to their sister. And what was Jacob's response to them? Do you remember? He says, what have you done? I'm paraphrasing, okay? What have you done? All these other cities are going to see what you did and they're going to come after us. Because of what you did. Right? Another distress. Distress. And it is in the context of this distress that God comes to Jacob again and he and what does he say he says go back to bethel go back to bethel so God is coming to him in this distress we're going to see four other opportunities for distress in this passage if you look in verse 8 we see the next potential distress it says and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elan-Bakuth. Now, again, these things just kind of feel thrown in there sometimes, and uh, and but I want you to think about this. Who is Deborah? She's the nurse that came with Rebecca, and if you remember way back when the servant went to get Isaac's wife, Rebecca agreed and came and they sent Deborah with her as her nurse and she was basically Deborah's servant. She was her 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 handmaid for lack of a better term. All right. So she was a very close servant. She's some, someone that was with her from way back in the beginning, potentially um, was, was even her servant at the time when she was uh, a young child. And if you think about that relationship, um, you think about Jacob and Esau, and again, Scripture doesn't tell us this specifically, but, um, but I just kind of, I think about this relationship because you wonder, why is, why is she here with Jacob? Why isn't she with Isaac? After all, that's where she's been all these years, right? Why is she here with Jacob? And, and this is just conjecture, but I think about, you know, the fact that we have Jacob was very much a homebody, we know Esau was a man in the field. He would go out. Jacob was was kind of a, a mama's boy, right? He, he stayed home. I can't help but wonder if perhaps Jacob had a more mother-type relationship with this servant. It's very possible this servant uh, was very much involved in, in taking care of him, um, maybe perhaps even more than Esau, just depending on... Um, you know how that relationship worked. We, we obviously know there's favorites between Isaac and Rebecca, between the two boys, but maybe there's just this um, this different uh, attachment that Deborah and Jacob have because of the way that he was brought up. We don't know. Again, that's just conjecture. But it's interesting that she's here with him and not with Isaac. And so here's someone who, quite frankly, based on what we see here, was somebody that Jacob loved dearly. It's one verse. It's just a passing reference to to her. But what does it say? It says that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon-Bakuth. Does anybody know what that means? Alon-Bakuth. It means oak of weeping. (laughs) Oak of weeping. There was enough of an attachment between him and Deborah that he named the oak, Oak of weeping. This wasn't just some random servant that died. This was someone that was special to him. And this occurs before he even gets to Bethel. Before he can even, um, well, about when he gets to Bethel because it's right underneath Bethel. It's where she's buried but before he before he even talks to God, we have this first distress. The second distress is found in verse sixteen. Who's this one? Rachel. Rachel, let's read it. Verse sixteen. Then they journey from Bethel when they were still some distance from ephrath Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor, and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. And she called his name Benani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is here to this day. When Moses is writing this account, that pillar that he set up, perhaps even more potentially the shape of more of a pyramid, was still there. When Moses is writing this to the children of Israel 400 plus later, years later, it's still there. It was a significant memorial that he left for the bride that he desired. We know that he loved the sons that she produced, Joseph and Benjamin, more than all the other sons. Again, no meaningless death. Very significant loss in Jacob's life. A very distressing loss in Jacob's life. Yes, it produced a son. <laughs> there, was, there was some hope bound up in that distress, but still a distressing time. The third one we see in verse 22, again, just a very quick reference which we don't really hear anything else about until the end of the book, where this is referenced in a, in a negative light in, in, uh, in the way that that Israel refers to his sons. But we read in verse twenty two, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, this you might say, maybe this is not that big of a distress. You know, he didn't really care that much about those other women, right? Especially this one. She was just one of the servants, one of the servant wives. She she wasn't that big of a deal. Well, it was a big enough deal to him later on to provide a not so nice statement upon his son Reuben before he dies. He remembered it. Another distress, the fourth distress in this passage. Actually, technically, doesn't even happen at this time. But verses 27 through 29 says, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriatharba, which, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. As Moses is writing this, he's not really... Worried about the timeline so much because if you actually figure out the timeline, Isaac really doesn't die until after Jacob, after Joseph is lost. In fact, when Joseph is lost, Isaac is only 168 years old, and it says here that he lived to be 180. So, why, you know, why is Moses doing this? Well, in a sense, he's kind of closing the chapter on Isaac, right? We don't hear anything else really about Isaac after this point, we're moving on really not a whole lot about Jacob, but really we're moving on to Joseph. Of course, the, the one that we've all been waiting to study, right? <laughs> Just make it through Genesis till we get to Joseph chapters. But that's he's closing the book here, and, he, and he, so he, he mentions another future event that's going to be a distressing event for Jacob, and that is the loss of his father. Of course, we know But there are two more that I'll throw in here. We haven't gotten to them yet. Joseph's disappearance will be a hugely distressing time for Jacob. He will lose the child, the firstborn of the woman that he loved the most, the woman that he worked 20 years for, or 14 years for. It's just lost. As far as he knows, torn by a beast, dead. And then further on, we're going to see that he's going to be in danger of potentially losing the other son from this woman as they come back and they say, when we go back, we got to take Benjamin with us. Otherwise, you know, they'll think we're spies. And there you can just, as you read that passage, you can just hear the sorrow and the grief on his voice as he slowly gives in to the need for food and the distress. So Jacob has a lot of potential distress. A lot of things in his life that are hard that can leave him feeling in danger or in a desperate need of help. Lots of opportunity for distress, but yet God has an answer for Jacob. And Jacob even kind of reminds himself of it to some degree. He says, we're gonna go to Bethel and we're gonna be, uh, we're gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna worship the God who has answered my distress and has always been with me. As soon as God talks to him and tells him, go up to Bethel, he is reminded immediately oh yeah, there's a God who has always been there in every distress that I have gone through. And I wanna look at these three answers, three answers that I believe God is giving for not just Jacob in the time of his distress, but for us, potentially in our distress as well. And these are not answers necessarily to the question why. As with Job, God does not always answer the question, why is this happening, Lord? But rather, these are answers to help us accept what God is doing. They're answers to help us accept what God is doing, whether we understand it or not. And the first answer that I believe God has for Jacob is a call to return to worship. A call to return to worship. As we know, we don't see a whole lot of that from Jacob in his life. It's interesting. We look at um, this this passage and God is specifically calling him not just to worship where he is, but he's he's making a very clear point. Go back to Bethel. Because he knows that in Jacob's mind, Bethel is a very special place. It's a special place where God came to me. What did he say? In the day of my distress, right? It's a, it's a very, it's a holy place. And so God is not just saying, worship me here. He's, he's, he's kind of putting an emphasis on this. You need to go back to the place of worship. You need to get back to a place of worship. And that is Bethel for Jacob. God met him in Bethel the first time and now he calls him to return to that place of communion with him. And it's interesting that Jacob recognizes the need to worship God in a proper way. Did you notice that? He recognizes that there is a proper way to worship God. Let's take a look at it here in verse uh, two. So Jacob said to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. What was that? Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garment. Now notice he says, it says it was to his household. This was not just his wives and his sons. This would have included his servants. Again, think about this. They they came from a place where there was obviously pagan worship. We know for sure that Rachel stole um, idols from Laban. and And Along this process, whether Jacob knew about it or not at the time, he knows about it now. There's been enough openness about these false idols and worship of them within his family that he is well aware of it. And he says, God is calling me back to a place of worship, and in order to do that, we need to get rid of these false gods. We need to get rid of these idols. And he collects all these idols and he hides them under the terebinth tree. And I'm not going to get into the whole terebinth tree. even though we bunch of commentaries are with each other about what that's talking about. But uh, he hides them. He gets rid of them. He puts them away. He leaves them there because he knows that he cannot come before the one true God, the Holy God, and be worshiping anything else. He says, put away your idols. And what he say? he says, purify yourselves. Clean yourselves, wash yourselves, to the point of even changing your clothes, change your garments. Because he understood that God is a holy God. And when you come to God to worship God, there is a need to come and worship in holiness. You know, that's one of the reasons why we have this time uh, of worship. Of of, of, uh, what do we call it? Confession, thank you. It wasn't wasn't coming to my brain. That's why we have this time of confession. Because we know that we all struggle, especially when we've got more of a day before we come to, to worship. There's so many opportunities for us to fail and to give in to our sinful flesh. And then we come and attempt to worship God with sinful hearts with vines that are really focused on something else. And Jacob says, if I'm going to go to to Bethel, if I'm going to go to this place of worship, I must come, not with my heart and my mind focused on these other idols, not dirty and, and unclean, but holy. God is calling him to a place of worship. It's interesting that This is so important to God that he ensures that Jacob and his family and his household have no problems getting to Bethel. Remember, what was Jacob afraid of? He's afraid that all these other cities are gonna come down on him because of what Simeon and Levi had done. But what happens? Verse verse five, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God is making sure that Jacob gets back to this place of worship. That's how important it is. Place of worship. Jacob returns to this place where God had met him. And what does he do? sets up an altar. And Jacob came to Luz, which is the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Jacob begins to worship God. He begins to worship God. The dictionary defines worship as, and this is a you know this is a secular de- definition, but defines worship as the feeling of reverence or adoration for a deity. The feeling of reverence or adoration for a deity. For us, we would say that honoring it's basically honoring God because He deserves it. Have we not seen that in the book of Genesis? Have we not seen that through creation? Through the way that God has interacted with fallen man, through the way that God has done whatever he will with man and through man, even imperfect men such as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Is he not worthy of honor? We sing that song, is he worthy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Jacob comes to a place of worship. Let's move on to the second answer. I'll come back and kind of apply some of these to ourselves as well here in a minute. The second answer that I see here is that God calls Jacob to remember his identity. God calls Jacob to remember his identity. What's the first thing that happened when God appears in verse nine? It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, what? Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Your name is Jacob but no longer will it be Jacob, Israel is your name." Now if you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, which I did just to make sure, you're probably gonna see Jacob more than you will see Israel. You will see uses of the word Israel to reference Jacob, but even through the rest of Genesis, you're gonna see Jacob mostly used to reference Jacob and not Israel. So it's interesting that God would make this distinction but this is not the first time that he's made this distinction. Do you remember? When did he do it the first time? What? No. Nope. When, when he wrestled, right? When he wrestled with the angel. He changed his name when he wrestled with God. Right? Wrestled with the angel. Sorry. Reading a lot of full commentaries. Um, when he wrestled with God, God changed his name. And in fact... That's what his name means. Israel means God contends. And yet we come to this point, and what does God do? He reminds him of that fact. You are no longer Jacob. Remember? I've given you a new name. I've given you a new name, and that is Israel. What did Jacob mean? Anybody Remember? Or no? Deceiver, Deceiver, supplanter, heel grabber. Because that's what he did. You know, that's why he got his name. Yeah. And think about this. God's reminding Jacob and saying, Jacob is your name. Your name is deceiver, supplanter, heel grabber. But that is not who you are, because I have renamed you. I have made you Israel, the one who contends with God. And in some uh, translations, we see the one who triumphs. And God. That is who you are now. You are not this man, you are Israel. And he reminds him of who he is. Again, we don't we don't necessarily see Israel being used exclusively by Moses from this point on, referencing Jacob. But have you ever heard anybody say the twelve tribes? Of Jacob? No. So even though Jacob never fully takes on this name for the rest of his life completely, we see it once in a while, but the nation that is going to rise up from him will bear his name for all eternity. Forever. The 12 tribes of Israel. God's chosen people will be known by this name. Not by Jacob, but by Israel. And he just reminds Jacob, you are not this name. I have called you to something else. I have made you something else. You are Israel. And he calls Jacob to a remembrance Of his identity. The third answer that I see is God calls Jacob to rest in his faithfulness. Rest in his faithfulness. He says, Excuse me, after he speaks to Jacob and he says, No longer is your name Jacob, but Israel, he says in verse 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. The first part of God's faithfulness is he just reminds him of who he is. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. No one contends with me. No one can force me to do anything. I am the only God, the one true God. I am God Almighty. This God who you you clearly stated has been with you, has guided you, has been a help in your distress. That is me. I am God Almighty. Remember that. Remember that, Jacob. I am not one of these foreign gods that you hid underneath a tree. I am the God of gods. I am the Lord of lords. I am God Almighty. He calls him to remember who God is. And then he reminds Jacob of what he has promised to do. What does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. So what is he saying? He's reminding him of the same thing that he promised to Abraham and he promised to Isaac. Is he not? There will be a great nation. In fact, multiple nations coming from you and there will be kings. This is gonna be a great thing. This is not just some, you know, a bunch of piddly, you know, tribes out in the middle of nowhere. This is a great company that God is going to raise from the the men that he has produced through these women. I am going to make you a great nation and a company of nations. And kings will rise up from them. He reminds them of the promise that he had already made to Abraham and to Isaac and even to Jacob in the past. But not only the nation, but he continues and he says, The land, in verse 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God reminds him of who he as God is. I am God Almighty. No one can do anything apart from me. I am the God. And then he says, I have promised you. This is not the first time I've told you this, Jacob. I have promised you that you will be the father of a great nation and of many nations and that you will possess the land and and your offspring will possess this land that I promised way back to Abraham many chapters ago. and your father, Isaac, and you. Don't forget the promises that I have made. And as Jacob is reminded of these promises, we see God goes up from him. We don't know exactly how God was interacting with Jacob. It was apparently in in some form of physical manifestation that he understood the presence of God there with him. It says that God went up from him in that place. And how did Jacob respond? Verse 14, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Jacob responds to this reminder of who God is and what he has promised the fact that he has fulfilled his promises in the fact in the in the past gives Jacob the confidence that he will fulfill the promises that he has made to him. And Jacob gives these offerings to God in worship. God's answers for distress in Jacob's life was not to remove the distress. He's gonna have a lot of distress. And I can't say that Jacob necessarily learned this one time and was good to go. Because how many of us learn something one time and are good to go in the spiritual life? We see him having a hard time with some of these distresses. He's not perfect. But God gives him three answers to dealing with distress and that is to return to a place of worship, to remember our identity, and to rest in God's faithfulness. And the same is true for us. When we come to these times of distress in our life, these three answers that God gave to Jacob are answers that work for us too. The word of God is not just an old dusty book about historical things. It is applicable to our lives Today, and these three answers can help us get through the distress of our life. That first one to return to worship. God is honored when we worship Him, especially in the day of our distress, because when we worship God, our focus is on Him. It's not in our distress, it's not in our troubles, it's not in our feelings. It's on him. If we're worshiping him properly, our focus is on him. I think of Matthew 6 25 through 34. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, don't get distressed. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4 says, You, speaking of God, keep him in perfect peace. When? When his mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. When we come to God and worship, we are reminded that he is the one where our focus should be. Philippians 4, 4 through 9 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Isn't that one of the ways that we worship him? and the God of peace will be with you. When we worship God in the times of our distress, he provides peace. That doesn't mean he's going to take the distress away, but it means that he gives us peace to go through it. That's one of God's answers. His second answer, remember who you are. We have been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to our own passions. But we are Christ, we are free. Several passages to remind us of that this morning, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. A new creation. Do you remember that in your time of distress? That we don't have to be caught up in the problems that are going on around us because we have something new. We are a new creation. God has made us new because of the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are God's children. That is who we are in Christ. That is what we should be reminded of as we go through these struggles, is that these struggles on earth are temporary, but we are God's children. And we have a home in heaven. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, a lot of scripture. I'm going to read it all. I'm sorry. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart, that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. A new creation. Romans 8. 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you lived according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, but in by this, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the power of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. Part of that distress is what glorifies us so that we suffer with him. Galatians 3, 26-29, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs with Christ even of the promise of Abraham. Do you remember your identity? Do you remember your citizenship, citizenships? Man, I can't say it. Do you remember whose you are? Because when you go through a time of distress and you remember whose you are, you remember why he allows us to go through these things. It doesn't take away the distress, but it makes it easier to bear. There is purpose in it. We can also rest in God's faithfulness. Three more passages and I'll be done. First Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, there's many passages we could go to or to remind us of God's faithfulness for us in the past and his faithfulness that we can count on in the future. by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, not because of what we do. It says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Aren't you glad that nothing pertaining to salvation and eternity is up to us? Because if it were up to us, we would fail. We've already failed. We can in no way measure up to what God requires of us. But he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. When we remember the faithfulness of God, we understand that no matter what happens with the distress that we're going through, he can be trusted. Because he's been faithful in the past and he'll be faithful in the future. I don't know what distresses you might be going through. Maybe to one person, your distress doesn't seem like much. Maybe to you, someone else's distress doesn't seem like much. But we all go through periods of struggle and heartache and sorrow and pain. Some of it for weeks and months and years and decades. God didn't promise Jacob a specific end to his distress. In fact, he's going to have more of it in the chapters to come. But what he did give him is an answer. Remember who I am. Worship me. And remember what you have because of me. When our focus is on God, it doesn't matter what we're going through because he is greater than any of it. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. And that sovereignty at times means that you bring into our lives things that are painful, things that we do not look forward to. Even though James tells us to count it all joy when we fall into these trials and temptations, Lord, it's hard for us to do so. Because we so often look on the outward things, the pain and the heartache and the sorrow, and we so often forget to look to you. And Lord, oftentimes when we look at you, it's not with a heart of worship, but rather it's a heart of anger and questions. Desiring for you to change things. But God, we thank you that you don't always change things, that you allow us to go through these struggles to make us more like Jesus Christ, to bring about our glorification, our sanctification. We thank you for that promise. And Lord, I pray for for us as we go through these trials, for these people who are here this morning, many of them going through different trials, Some would even call them distresses. Lord, we know that there will be trials and tribulations to come. You've not offered us a life of ease. In fact, you've offered us a life of pain, a life of of the world coming against us. That's what you've promised us, Lord. And so often we forget that and we desire ease, and comfort. Help us to remember who you are. Help us to worship you with pure hearts. Help us to rely on the promises that you have given because you have promised that one day you will return and we will stand before you and be judged by the things that we do, including the ways that we deal with these times of heartache and trouble may we be able to stand before you having taken these truths to heart and may you be able to say to us well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master that is our desire Lord help us to be faithful as you are faithful for it's in Christ's name we pray Amen.